This is History 2311, Week 2A, America Incorporated. John Henry, one little baby, sing on it, daddy's knees. Got the big pin town on the sea, and oh, it's a gone. Welcome back, everybody. In this video, I'm going to zoom in on the year 1876, or really the year 1876 to 77. This was the United States of America's 100th birthday, counting from the Declaration of Independence in 1776. It was also an election year, and it was also, as we talked about last week, the end of Reconstruction. Uh, My lecture today is not a complete history of the era. It is instead a snapshot just one moment in the incorporation of America. And when I say the incorporation of America, I mean that in two ways, really. One is the territorial incorporation, that is the reintegration of the South into national politics and the national economy after the Civil War, and also the incorporation of the West into the national economy. But I also mean incorporation as in corporations, which were, if not a brand new invention in the 1870s, certainly their size and dominance in America was a new phenomenon. And zooming into one year like this kind of lets me tease out connections across space. I want to talk about what was happening, how what was happening in, say, Philadelphia in 1876 was connected to what was happening in the Reconstruction South and to what was happening in, say, the Dakota Territory out West. And in so doing, kind of give you a picture of the United States at 100 as we begin our course. So as I say, 1876 was the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It was the United States of America's centennial year. And Americans celebrated their country's 100th birthday at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, which is the city where the Declaration of Independence was signed 100 years before. World's fairs and expositions like this one, commemorations like this, they're kind of irresistible to historians because they are these what these moments when societies put themselves on display, they kind of gather together everything that they're proud of, new inventions, discoveries, emblems of progress, and they put them all on display uh, for the world and, and in a way for posterity, for people like us, historians, to look back at them. So a question that I might ask the class at this point, if we were all in a room together, is if you were putting on a display, an exhibition or an exposition of American life in the year 2021, what would you put there? What would you put on display? I'll let you think about that and maybe talk about it in your tutorial groups. One big theme of this class, one thing that I really want to spend a lot of time getting across is how historians use evidence. How do we know about the past? Well, we know about the past by studying primary sources, by studying the traces, the evidence, the documents left over from the past. And uh, I mean, World's Fairs, like the Centennial Exposition, are themselves kind of like historical sources. We can't actually attend them, you know, a, a fair from 150 years ago. But they generated all sorts of documentation that we can actually read them and analyze them in a way. So the Centennial Exposition of 1876 is sort of like a document that we can read to see what Americans were proud of in 1876, what they saw as important or impressive about themselves and their nation. And then like any historical source, the exposition is also interesting in terms of what it doesn't show. What are the things they didn't talk about? What are the things they didn't want to talk about, but also what are the blind spots, the things that seem significant to us now that that just were not, that they were not aware of or not explicit about. So here's a source that we can look at together. What you're looking at is a lithograph from the 1876 exposition. Uh, It's called Centennial Mirror. And 
Historians go through a certain series of steps or questions when they are analyzing or interpreting primary sources. And I want you to learn these steps and to go through the same steps whenever you look at historical sources, uh, whether it's the documents we give you to read for tutorial or the ones you're going to analyze as assignments in this course. Um, and you'll probably do this in the final exam at the end of the class too. I put all these steps into a handout for you uh, and your TAs should go over it in tutorial, but here's a short version of the steps here. So the first thing we do when looking at a primary source, before we even really begin to read it and see what it says, is we want to source it. We want to know when and where is this document from? I say document, I could say it could be an image, it could be, I mean, primary sources can be all sorts of things, an artifact, any kind of trace evidence of the past. But this one we'll call a document. When and where is this document from? Who created it? Why did they create it? What kind of document is it? And then how does all that information shape the source we're looking at, what we would expect it to say and what it means? So what we're looking at is a piece of artwork from the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia in 1876. Who created it? The artwork is signed by a man named Louis or Louis Kurtz, who I was able to learn just from Googling, was an Austrian-born artist who emigrated to the United States in 1848. He settled in Milwaukee, and he established a company called the American Oleograph Company, like a printing company. And a lithograph, or I guess Kurtz was calling them oleographs, is a kind of print in which an image is etched onto like smooth stone for mass production. So this is a piece of art designed to be a souvenir for people attending the Centennial Exposition. So we can assume, given that, that it's going to be patriotic, it's going to be celebratory, it's going to do a good job of showing us what Lewis Kurtz thought was worth celebrating in America in 1876. And, you know, it probably won't tell us much about things he thought were controversial or problematic. So after we've sourced the document, our next step is to observe it or read it. We actually read the document or we look at the image and we ask, what does it say? What does it show? How does it say or show this? And what can we learn about the past from the things it says and the things it shows? So if we zoom in on the centennial mirror, we see, as I said, it's called a mirror. And uh, if you look, you know, if we pan from left to right, you see that it's, it's symmetrical and the two sides of the image are meant to contrast life in 1776 with life in 1876. And I guess show how different they are. So for instance, we have on the one side, a, you know, in the top corner here, we've got a rustic log cabin church. Uh, and then in the other, the top right corner, we've got this uh, fancy stone church. We've got a covered wagon uh, over here and we've got a locomotive over here. So that's meant to show technological progress. We have the signing of the Declaration of Independence here. And over here we have, well, this is actually the Philadelphia Exposition of 1876. And, you know, it's kind of fun just to go back and forth and examine all the comparisons. Up here in 1876, we see uh, it looks like women fighting in the revolution, uh, firing cannons, fighting against the British. Uh, whereas in 1876, uh, American women are just lounging on couches, I guess. I suppose that's, that's progress. Um, and some of, the, you know, some of the comparisons are actually funny to me because in a, from a 21st century perspective, they don't actually look all that different. Over here at the bottom in 1776, we have some, some skinny cows, some skinny pigs. And in 1876, we have uh, fat cows and, and big chonky pigs. Um, you know, that, I guess that's a difference. In the agricultural society of the late 19th century, that was a big difference. The fat livestock was what a powerful sign of health and prosperity and national pride. And you can go through and look and see what other comparisons you can draw out. One thing that we always like to ask as historians, in addition to what a document or a source shows us, what does it not show us? What uh, things are not illustrated here? One thing that I noticed, given that this was published in 1876, is that there is nothing here about the Civil War. There is nothing here about slavery. 
I don't see any African Americans. Uh, there's nothing here about Native Americans or the conquering of the West, which is also something that's going on at this time. I mean, in 1876, you know, the nation had just been broken apart. The South was still under hostile occupation by the North. And the West, in a lot of ways, was at war too, um, the Indian Wars, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Now, it's not surprising that none of those things appear in this document. As I said, it's intended to be celebratory and to avoid controversy but it's still worthwhile to note what we do and don't see. Other things I don't really notice here, um, there's no cities. It's a very pastoral vision of what America is, even in the, you know, it's a before and after picture, even in the modern 1876 pictures, what we see is farms, open spaces. Uh, we don't see cities. We see machinery, but only sort of farming machinery. And this vision of America and that this is what makes America great, you know, I guess this was plausible in 1876, but even like 20 years later, that kind of vision would, would be considerably less plausible. In 1893, Chicago would hold its own exposition, a much bigger exposition called the Columbian Exposition or the 1893 World's Fair. Here is what Chicago looked like in 1893. It's not very pastoral at all. So I've already slipped into now, that was observing the source or reading the source. I've already slipped into the third thing that we do as historians when looking at a source. And that is we contextualize. We use what we already know about the era, the creator, the time and the place the source was created. And we try and put the document or source into context, okay? We connect it to the things we already know. And we ask, how do the things we already know help us to understand this source, to interpret this source and its significance better. Sources don't speak on their own, or at least rarely do they speak on their own. We, it's when we put them in context that we really come up with interesting things to say. And then the final step, which I'm not gonna do in full right now, but which should always be part of your investigations is to corroborate the source and the information we've pulled out of it by forming new questions about the document and investigating them. So what questions do we have that would help us to understand this document further? What information might help us? Uh, what do we wanna find out now? Where do we wanna go now? Where would we go to find that? Looking at the Centennial Mirror, I'm curious, for instance, you know, how mass produced were these? Was this like an expensive item that you would buy and frame and it was like a big deal piece of art in your home? Or were they, you know, printing hundreds of these and they were all kind of blowing around the Philadelphia Exposition like litter? I don't know the answer, but this is the sort of thing I want to know to try and put this source in context. I also want to know if Kurtz, the artist, you know, designed this himself or if it was maybe commissioned by the exposition. Like who is the true author or artist here? Uh, if Kurtz did it himself, did he base it on anybody else's work? I'd be curious to compare this with images from the Chicago Exposition in 1893, like to see if my suspicion is right that these kind of pastoral farming images might have been on the way out. Again, I don't know the answer, but that's the point of this last step is to generate questions, further questions that we would like to know to corroborate what we've learned. But I want to return now to this question of what does this document not say or show? Uh, what things were going on in 1876, what transformations were happening that we can see from our vantage point in 2021, but that uh, Kurtz in 1876 either didn't see or didn't think to put or didn't want to include in this uh, document of his time. Um, and this is something we should always be asking both about the historical past and about our own present. What, what, are the, what are the things, the processes, the transformations that we are part of or that were happening that we don't think to mention? It's like the old story about, uh, you know, the fish, the two young fish are swimming along and they, they meet an older fish swimming in the opposite direction. And the old fish says, morning boys, how's the water? And the young fish swim on for a little bit. And then one of the young fish says, what the hell is water? And, uh, you know, the point of the story is that we don't notice the medium we are immersed in, right? The most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities, the things that surround us are sometimes the things that are hardest to notice and talk about. And that's true in history, too. 
We spend a lot of time in history classes talking about some things, presidents, wars, but there are other bigger, deeper forces that are often harder to see. And I want you to think about that as you listen to this or watch this video. And also just as we go through this class, I mean, what is the water for US history? What is the medium that US history is immersed in, but that Americans or American historians don't always acknowledge or, or even can't see? Going back to Philadelphia in 1876, what else was on display there? What would we see if we were walking the grounds of the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia? Well, a very famous arm and torch were there. This is uh, the hand or the arm uh, and the torch of the Statue of Liberty. The statue was a gift from France to celebrate the 100th birthday of the United States and the 100 year friendship between the US and France, and also to celebrate the recent abolition of slavery. The statue was designed by a French sculptor named Frederick Bartholdi and built by uh, Gustave Eiffel, who would also build the Eiffel Tower. Uh, it wasn't finished in 1876. In fact, they didn't have enough money to erect the whole statue, so they just set up the arm and the torch uh, as a way of raising publicity and funds uh, to build the rest of the statue. And the Statue of Liberty uh, illustrates a couple of the themes of this class. It, I think, is a lovely illustration of the changing meaning of American freedom and also the way America has been viewed in the world. Today, uh, the statue is associated not just with America as a land of liberty, but uh, America as a nation that welcomes immigrants from all around the world. Lady Liberty stands on Ellis Island in New York Harbor. So all the ships arriving in New York and for decades, uh, pretty much all immigrants who came to America, at least from Europe, entered America through New York Harbor. Uh, all these ships pass under the Statue of Liberty. It's the first thing they see when they arrive in America. Um, but in 1876, the statue did not yet have that close association with immigration. In fact, as I said, the statue was really meant to be a celebration of the end of slavery. In the original model for the statue, uh, she was holding broken chains in her hands to refer to the broken chains of slavery, but it was sort of altered. The completed statue is standing on a broken shackle and chains. But the statue is so big, the pedestal is so high that if you've ever been to see the Statue of Liberty, you probably didn't see the chains. You can't see them from the ground. To me, that's kind of symbolic of how the original anti-slavery meaning of the statue has been kind of forgotten or at least folded into a broader conception of liberty generally. But in 1876, the statue had no feet. It was just the torch and the arm. And uh, like I said, these were displayed at Philadelphia at the exposition. Then after the fair, they were moved to New York City, to Madison Square Park, where they sat for like the next 10 years. Fundraising proved difficult. And by the early 1880s, the project was in danger of being abandoned uh, before Joseph Pulitzer, who was a newspaper editor, the editor of the New York World, started a drive for donations to finish the project. Uh, and the New York World was, was one of the first mass circulation newspapers in America, uh, a cheap paper that reached a wide audience with sensationalism and gossip and sex and crime, but also that pioneered uh, all sorts of things like sports pages and comic strips and features aimed at women. Really the modern newspaper, the New York World was one of the first modern city newspapers. Pulitzer was an immigrant. He was a Hungarian Jew who had emigrated to the United States in 1864. And, and many of his readers in New York City were immigrants too. And it was really Pulitzer's publicity campaign that connected the Statue of Liberty to immigration. In particular, Pulitzer commissioned and published a poem called The New Colossus, uh, a poem about the statue by a young Jewish woman, a poet named Emma Lazarus. And uh, Pulitzer's publicity drive and Lazarus's famous poem, the one that says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. This famous poem that now uh, is emblazoned on the plaque at the bottom of the statue, um, they succeeded in raising the money needed to complete the statue. A lot of the money they raised in very small, like $1 donations from uh, the working class immigrants who read the New York world. 
And thanks to their efforts, the statue was completed and erected and, and opened to the public in 1886, 10 years after uh, the Philadelphia Exposition. And just as Pulitzer and Lazarus had foreseen, the statue became the first thing that many, that many immigrants saw upon their arrival in the United States. And so it became irrevocably associated, not with the liberty of the revolution and not with the abolition of slavery, but instead with the idea of America as a symbol of liberty to immigrants, to the poor huddled masses all around the world. The Statue of Liberty's meaning for African-Americans in this era was much more ambiguous. By 1886, when the statue was completed, I mean, reconstruction had been crushed. The Supreme Court had rolled back the civil rights progress of the 1870s. Jim Crow laws were tightening their grip. One black newspaper in 1886 said that the idea of American liberty enlightening the world was a cruel joke and they should just shove the statue into the sea. The black historian W.E.B. Du Bois, who I talked about last week, said he thought the most notable thing about the statue was that it faced France and had its back turned to America. But let's go back to Philadelphia in 1876. The center of Centennial Exposition was Machinery Hall. So this was a huge like hall showcasing all the latest technologies, all the machinery that was on display. Here you can see the Krupp guns, which is giant German artillery guns. Um, also the steam press, the telegraph, machine tools. When we think about our own era and what we want to celebrate, if I, when I ask the question, you know, what would you put on display to symbolize life in 2021? We often turn to technology because technology is something concrete we can see and uh, it changes fast enough for us to notice. When I asked this question in the classroom, what would you put on display to illustrate life today? One thing that, that students very often mention is smartphones. Well, in 1876, uh, a young Scottish Canadian named Alexander Graham Bell was at Philadelphia to demonstrate his brand new invention, the telephone, which he had just got working only a few weeks before. Uh, Bell's invention actually did not make that much of a splash at Philadelphia. It seemed, you know, people thought it was a fun toy, basically. Uh, they thought it was neat that this machine could talk, but it, they didn't really see its significance. We rarely know what the real epoch-changing inventions are going to be before they do their work. The star of the exposition was not the telephone. It was a colossal steam engine known as the Corliss Centennial Engine, built specially for the fair. It was 70 feet tall. It weighed 650 tons. And this huge steam engine ran power to all of the other machinery in the fair. The Corliss engine symbolized the industrial technology that was transforming America in 1876, that was turning it into an industrial power on a scale the world had never seen. The Industrial Revolution, you know, it was well underway by the time our course begins in 1865. Uh, it began really in Britain in the 1700s, and Britain used the power of steam and coal to essentially take over the world. But by the late 1800s, which was the zenith of the British Empire, Britain was already being overtaken in industrial production by other nations, especially Germany and the United States. And it was in the 1880s that US industrial production first surpassed Great Britain. By uh, 1913, the eve of the First World War, the United States was actually producing one third of the world's industrial output, more than Great Britain, France, and Germany combined. And the Corliss engine was a concrete symbol of all that. Just like we understand today that our phones are, you know, they're, they're, they're useful in and of themselves, but they're also a symbol of the global interconnection, the social media that has transformed all of our lives. Just like that, in 1876, the big Corliss engine was symbolic of all sorts of changes in American life that might not have been directly caused by that engine, but were clearly interconnected with it. Changes like industrial growth. Um, I know this is just like a sea of numbers here, but there's, there's really interesting stories in each of these numbers. By 1880, for the first time, the majority of the American workforce were not farmers. This is a brand new thing in human history. For most of human history, thousands of years, 80 to 90% of people worked as farmers. 
But by around 1890, two thirds of Americans worked for wages. A new kind of working class was emerging. Also between 1870 and about 1920, 11 million Americans moved from the farm to the city and something like 25 million immigrants arrived from overseas. So millions of people entering the country and millions of people moving from the farm to the city. This was not something that America's founders expected or wanted. The founding fathers, people like Thomas Jefferson, imagined that America would be a nation of independent small farmers. The nation it became a nation with a large permanent working class and a small number of millionaires or billionaires would have been terrifying to Jefferson and people like him. So what Americans put on display at Philadelphia in 1876 was the Corliss engine, but the real engine driving change was industrialization, the industrial revolution, and the new market economy, in particular, the railroad. Here we have a, a series of famous maps uh, from the Atlas of the Historical Geography of the United States. And these maps, these maps are called isochrones. And uh, if we zoom in, how they work is, you know, so this is showing rates of travel. And basically each of these contour lines shows how far somebody could travel from New York City in one day, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days, a week, two weeks, three weeks, and so on. And so what they show, of course, is that in 1800, it took an awful long time to get just a little bit inland from New York and that the speed at which people could travel across the country changed uh, drastically uh, in the, during the 19th century. In the 1830s, the fastest way of traveling inland was a canal boat pulled by mules. There were a few dirt roads, but these were, these were slower still, and they really only met, went a few miles inland. Uh, also, of course, canals and dirt roads were impassable for much of the year. As the century went on, steamboats and then railroads facilitated much more rapid transportation. The first transcontinental railroad, that is railroad crossing the North America all the way from the East Coast to the West, was completed in 1869. And by the 1890s, there were actually five transcontinental railroads, including the Canadian Pacific up in Canada, and at least one other uh, railroad transcontinental had gone bankrupt from competition. And then besides the transcontinentals, there was just a carpet of smaller railroads connecting uh, every town and city along the way. The song I played at the start of this video was The Ballad of John Henry. Uh, back when, when this class met in person, I liked to play a piece of music at the start of every class. I play the whole song as people sort of filed into their seats. This year, I think I'm just gonna use short snippets. Uh, I hope you enjoy them. I, I may not in every case stop to explain their relevance, but they always are connected to the subject for, uh, or the time period that we are talking about in that lecture. So I encourage you to think about them and to try and maybe figure out how they connect to the themes of the lecture and also just to listen to them as an oral history, that is A-U-R-A-L, oral history of American music from the 19th century up to the present. John Henry, the subject of the, the Ballad of John Henry is uh, like an American folk hero. There are dozens, if not hundreds of versions of the John Henry song and the John Henry legend. But the basic story is that John Henry was, as the song says, a steel driving man. That is a man who worked for the railroads, a man whose job when they were digging railroad tunnels was to hammer a steel drill into the rock to make holes for explosives to blast a tunnel. Now the legend says that John Henry was the railroad's biggest, strongest, fastest driller and that he was challenged to a race with a steam-powered rock drilling machine. Who could drill faster into the mountain? John Henry with his hammer or this new steam-powered drilling machine. And as the story goes, John Henry raced the machine and won the race, but the race killed him. He had a heart attack or keeled over from exertion. And the lyric in the song is that he fell down and died with his hammer in his hand. For over a hundred years, people have been investigating, researching, wondering whether there really was a real John Henry, and if so, who he was and where this uh, story took place. The most recent and, and I think the most convincing research into the historical John Henry says that he was probably a uh, African-American convict laborer, just 19 years old, an inmate in Virginia penitentiary, 
who was leased out as labor to the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. I talked a little bit last week about how convict labor became a kind of replacement for slavery after the Civil War. And it's very likely that if he was real, John Henry was one of these uh, leased out convict laborers. The race, if it really happened, might well have happened in the construction of the Big Bend Tunnel in West Virginia, sometime between 1870 and 1872. Whatever the true history is, John Henry became a folk hero to both black and white Americans, a symbol of strength and endurance, of exploited labor, of the working man, of racial pride. There are versions of the John Henry song and story in which he is white, and there are versions in which his race is not mentioned at all, but usually he is uh, depicted as black, and the historical John Henry was almost certainly black. And I guess, I guess most of all, he's a symbol of sort of the dignity and strength of human labor at the dawn of the machine age. But also, of course, it is a story about how, even though he won the race, the machine age destroyed him. Let's go back to the railroads for a minute. So once the railroads were built, you could obviously get from place to place faster. But what difference did that make to American life? Well, here's one small difference is that in 1883, all the American railroads agreed to adopt standardized time zones. Before that, every city kept track of its own time. So for instance, Boston time was like eight minutes ahead of New York time, which was like 11 minutes ahead of Washington time. This sounds chaotic, but uh, it really wasn't experienced as such as chaotic until after railroads and telegraphs linked the country together, creating the expectation that things would be simultaneous. I mean, before the railroad and the telegraph, if you lived in Boston, what difference did it make to you if everybody in New York had their, their watch seven minutes slower than yours? It's significant for our story that it was not the government that created time zones. It was the railroads. In 1886, the railroads also adapted a standard national uh, gauge or gauge. Basically, the, they, they set the width between the two rails of the train tracks uh, at a standard width. And this made it possible for trains of any company to travel on any other's track, effectively making all the railroads in the country one big interconnecting network, knitting together a national economy. Here's another example of how the railroads changed things. Visitors at the Philadelphia Exposition in 1876, uh, one of the things that they could buy at the, at the fair was oranges and bananas individually wrapped in foil. And this was a big deal because the experience of eating an orange or a banana in the wintertime was a marvel to Americans in the 1870s and 1880s, made possible by the railroads, by the fact that they could be shipped fast enough that they wouldn't spoil. At Philadelphia, there was also a St. Louis brewer named Adolphus Bush selling a pasteurized beer called Budweiser. And it was pasteurized so it could stay fresh on cross-country trips, meaning that Bush could ship the beer all over the country. And through mass production, Bush could make beer cheaper than local brewers and enjoyed uh, what people call economies of scale. So he started selling cheap beer all over the country from one source. Another German uh, from Pittsburgh, a man named Henry J. Hines, was selling pickles, preserves, horseradish, and sweet tomato ketchup, all things that also could be preserved, could be transported, shipped on the railroad, and sold nationally. And the railroads made these new nation-spanning businesses, these new national brands possible, Budweiser beer, Heinz ketchup, Campbell's soup, Quaker oats, all of the first national brands appeared in these years, symbols uh, and products of the new national economy. So we're getting closer now to seeing the real change that was happening, that, that was much deeper and more profound than, than Lewis Kurtz could show on that centennial mirror. Here's a railroad map of the United States in 1876, and it looks for the first time territorially a lot like the United States we know. There are still a few differences. The area uh, here that will become Oklahoma is still at this point known as Indian territory, uh, but the, the continent is being filled in. Um, and probably the most important feature of this map is that it is a railroad map, a railroad map published by the railroad companies, because it was the railroad more than just about anything else that made it possible to conceive of the United States as 
one interlocking economy. The transcontinental railroads that spanned the continent were important in connecting the East Coast to the West, uh, bringing this vast territory of the West into that national economy. But just as important was this whole dense carpet of railroad connections laid down in the East. This had all sorts of effects on US history in ways uh, not immediately apparent to people in Philadelphia. At the time of the exposition in 1876, America was in the middle of a deep economic depression. They actually called this depression, the depression of the 1870s, they called it the Great Depression, at least until the Great Depression of the 1930s came along. And the Great Depression of the 1870s had started in 1873, triggered by the failure of a railroad, Jay Cook's Northern Pacific Railroad. When Cook's Railroad went bankrupt, the whole economy shuddered. They called this the Panic of 73. The New York Stock Exchange shut down for 10 days. A third of the country's railroads went bankrupt. Unemployment shot up, wages went down. And the depression that this panic brought on was still very much lingering in 1876, but there weren't any exhibits about that at the Centennial Exposition. Another way the railroads were interwoven in US history. I talked the other day about the Compromise of 1877 or the Bargain of 1877 that ended reconstruction uh, after the uh, contested election of 1876. The man who actually negotiated this bargain was a man named Thomas Scott. And he was the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, which in 1876 was probably the largest publicly traded corporation in the world. Lincoln made Scott his assistant secretary of war, and he oversaw the use of railroads by the Union Army in the Civil War. Part of the bargain of 77 that I didn't mention the other day was that Scott promised Southern Democrats that he would build them a second transcontinental railroad, this one across the South, basically a promise that the South would not be left behind in the new industrial economy. And Scott partnered with them and got a sweetheart deal on the land and the construction to build the second transcontinental. In my lecture last time, I asked who won the civil war? An answer you don't often hear, but a very plausible answer is the railroads. The first national strike, the labor strike in America, and still one of the largest strikes in American history was the great railroad strike of 1877. Thomas Scott's Pennsylvania Railroad was competing with uh, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Um, Pennsylvania and the B&O, you might recognize these names. They're both spaces in the game monopoly. Uh, Scott cut costs on his railroad by firing hundreds of workers, cutting their wages 20% and uh, doubling the length of the trains on the railroad without really adding any new crew. And the B&O Railroad did the same. After this happened, railroad workers went on strike from Baltimore and Pittsburgh to Chicago and St. Louis. They essentially shut down railroad traffic across the nation, which means they shut down the whole national economy. Thomas Scott, president of the railroad, convinced the new president of the country, President Hayes, to use the U.S. Army to protect the railroad. He said, give those strikers uh, a diet of rifle bullets for the next few days and see how they like that kind of bread. So the same troops that had until recently occupied the South were now being put to use, putting down striking workers. There's a nice discussion, a brief discussion, but a good one of the railroad strike, also known as the Great Upheaval, in your textbook chapter, the American YAP chapter for this week on capital and labor. The strike really galvanized both the labor movement and the capitalist class. It kicked off more than 50 years of, of bitter conflict between labor and capital in the United States. Even if you leave politics out of it, the railroads were big business. They were in fact the biggest corporations that the world had to that point ever seen. And so simply because of their size, they couldn't help but have a huge impact on the economy. Basically, the railroads led to the modern corporation, the modern stock market, the whole kind of modern financial system. The first big railroads in the Pennsylvania Railroad, the Baltimore and Ohio, the New York Central Railroad, uh, they were all capitalized at something like 30 to $40 million, meaning that's how much it cost to build them. And nobody had ever needed that much money before. How do you raise $35 million if you wanna build a railroad? Well, what you do is you divide the railroad up and you, you sell it to 35,000 investors. You get everybody to put $1,000 in. 
In other words, you create a market for the sale of stock. There were stock markets, stock exchanges before this period, uh, but nothing on the scale of the 19th century stock market. And the railroads, just their size kind of dwarfed anything that had come before, economically speaking. By 1900, the combined capital, or actually the combined debt of all US railroads was something like $5 billion, which made them nearly five times the size of the federal government. The huge capital demands of 19th century railroad construction are what created the machinery of modern finance, things like securities traders and investment bankers. And really it's what created the modern corporation the managerial corporation where hundreds of thousands of people own a small share of a big corporation was itself a new invention, something that was not on display at Philadelphia, but was behind just about everything I've talked about today. What you're looking at here, this picture is an early org chart for the uh, New York and Erie Railroad. And if we zoom way in, I really think it's a gorgeous diagram, uh, regardless of what it shows or doesn't show. Every one of these tiny little dots is an employee. So we have the board of directors here and the president here, but then each one of these little dots like branches on a tree uh, is a clerk or an engineer or somebody, some part of the huge system that was the New York and Erie Railroad. Another link between the railroads and maybe the better known narratives of US history uh, comes here in the, the now infamous case of the Santa Clara County versus the Southern Pacific Railroad. So this was a Supreme Court case in 1886. The state of California tried to give a tax break to individuals, but they didn't want to give the same tax break to the railroads. Now remember the 14th Amendment to the Constitution passed after the Civil War guarantees equal rights to all persons. It was designed to guarantee the rights of freed slaves. But the Southern Pacific Railroad argued that charging it higher taxes because it was a corporation violated its 14th Amendment rights. In other words, they asserted that a corporation has 14th Amendment rights. And the Supreme Court agreed. And this case set the landmark precedent that corporations are essentially people under the law with the same rights as human beings. This decision is still controversial and it still comes up, it's still relevant. Uh, for instance, it's part of the precedent for the Citizens United decision in 2010, which said that money is speech and therefore uh, when you, it, efforts to restrict corporate spending on elections are actually in violation of corporations' First Amendment rights to freedom of speech. So whatever you think of that decision, the, the historical point is that an amendment originally put in place to protect the rights of the freed former slaves by the 1880s is being used to protect railroads from paying higher taxes and today is used to prevent campaign finance reform. Okay, I've talked today about the South and the North, but the effects of the new industrial capitalism were really most dramatic in the West. At the end of the Civil War, white settlement barely extended west of the Mississippi River and beyond that was millions of acres of land inhabited by about a half a million Native Americans. Indigenous Americans had lived in North America for thousands and thousands of years. By the late 19th century, the Native nations and bands living in the Trans-Mississippi West, that is in the North American continent west of the Mississippi, they had had decades of contact and conflict with Spanish, French, British, and American explorers, traders, and settlers, but they still remained sovereign over their lives and their lands and their destinies. That changed in the late 19th century. From the American point of view, the end of the Civil War opened the West up to settlement. This famous drawing or lithograph across the continent shows how Americans viewed uh, the push of the railroad settlement, what they would call civilization into what they viewed as an empty continent. The United States was industrializing. Its population was mushrooming. They were laying down railroad tracks and American capital was hungry for raw materials and new markets. The decades after the Civil War saw a huge push of settlers west. It saw the violent pacification of indigenous people and the forceful incorporation of the west into the national economy. 
Now, the mythology of the Old West is all about frontiersmen and cowboys and rugged individualism and independence. But the West is actually the part of the country where big corporations played the biggest role. I mean, we think of the West as being like little family farms, settler homesteads, like little house on the prairie. But a lot of the West, places like California, have been dominated by giant corporate landholders really all the way back to the days of the old Spanish empire. A lot of the land out West was owned by corporations like the Southern Pacific Railroad and was not worked by families, but by migrant laborers brought in from Mexico, China, or the Philippines. Even cowboys, cowboy, the cowboy, the iconic symbol of rugged American independence. In the real old West, cowboys were low paid seasonal laborers, precarious gig workers, if you like, employed by large ranching corporations. In fact, cowboys were union members. In the 1870s and especially the 1880s saw a series of great cowboy strikes in which cowboys went on strike, labor clashed with the big beef interests. The American West was also the part of the country where the federal government was the most active. They sold land, they funded railroad construction, and they sent in the army to drive Native Americans off the land. This is a map of the so-called Indian Wars, which was really a series of skirmishes, engagements, fights between the U.S. Army and the Native populations of the American West. As Union soldiers and officers returned from the South in the Civil War, the Army sent them West uh, to clear territory for white settlement. I talked the other day about the Freedmen's Bureau. After the Freedmen's Bureau was shut down, its former director, General Oliver Howard, was sent West uh, specifically to put down the Apache and the Nez Perce. He drove them by force out of Oregon and Idaho, moving them to the territory that is now called Oklahoma. Another Civil War general, Philip Sheridan, who was famous during the Civil War for burning Southern farms in the Shenandoah Valley, forcing Southern surrender by cutting off the food supply, used exactly the same tactics fighting Native Americans on the Great Plains. Famous quote from Sheridan, kill every buffalo you can because every buffalo dead is an Indian gone. Of course, Native Americans fought back. For example, the day in June 1876 that Alexander Graham Bell was demonstrating his telephone at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia was the very same day that the native leaders Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse led a force of Sioux and Cheyenne warriors in what whites call the Battle of Little Bighorn, what Native Americans call the Battle of the Greasy Grass. In this battle, they killed General George Armstrong Custer and his force of 250 men. And this very famous battle is another example of how history notices some things and not others. The Sioux were fighting to defend the Black Hills of the Dakota Territory, which was their homeland. Custer and his army were in the Black Hills to protect the operations of the Northern Pacific Railroad. The railroad was there because gold had been discovered in the Black Hills. And Custer himself was an investor in Black Hills mining interests. He was actually collecting two salaries, one from the US Army and one from the railroad. My point is not that Custer was an evil man or that there's something wrong with business. My point is that money and business, these are the invisible threads behind so much of US history, but they kind of get ignored like, like water gets ignored by fish. After he died, Custer became, for white Americans, an almost Christ-like martyr, and his business connections and his railroad interests were all pretty much completely forgotten. Americans were determined to avenge his death, and, and U.S. troops swarmed into the Dakotas, killing and capturing the Sioux and the Cheyenne. Crazy Horse was killed. Sitting Bull fled to Canada. Native Americans were forced onto smaller and smaller reservations, tiny fractions of the land that had once been theirs. Sitting Bull fled to Canada, but he didn't like it here. He eventually went back to the U.S. And when he did, he took a job in Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. And in his job, what he did was he reenacted, he play acted his own real fight against the U.S. Army as entertainment for Americans to come see. And Cody's Wild West show uh, was itself a sign of how quickly the frontier West evaporated. That a buffalo hunter like Cody and a Sioux chief like Sitting Bull could go within 10 years from fighting each other for the West 
to reenacting that fight just as a kind of pop culture entertainment, that too is a sign of the incorporation of America. There's an old sort of saw or story, you see it in history textbooks, you hear it in history classes like this one, that the Civil War was the point at which Americans stopped referring to the United States in the plural and started using the singular. In other words, that they stopped saying the United States are and started saying the United States is. Uh, what you're looking at here is, is a graph from Google Engram. I don't know if you know about this, but this is a, you know, a cool Google site where you can plug in phrases and see how frequently they appear in Google's vast corpus of digitized books. And what you see if you look at these two lines, the United States are and the United States is, is that the shift from talking about the United States as a plural collection of states to a singular nation did happen after the Civil War. But it wasn't just the Civil War. And in fact, the key moment appears to be right around 1880. In other words, right around what we're talking about today. So the Civil War was part of this transformation, but I would say that also Reconstruction and its end, the Indian Wars, the building of the railroads, the rise of national brands, the creation of big nation-spanning businesses, all of these were part of the same process of national incorporation that turned the plural states into the singular United States. The railroads were probably the biggest, most obvious symbols of that incorporation, but what drove it really was money and business and commerce and the market, knitting together a continent, uniting them politically, but perhaps more importantly, incorporating them all into one national economy. And ultimately, I think that is the water of US history. That is the medium that it all swims in, the thing that shapes everything, but nobody sees. Money, corporations, class. History books are sometimes written as if there's no such thing as businesses, no such thing as economic class. Uh, I want you to try and keep that in view in, as we go through this course. At its best, history helps us to see what we otherwise wouldn't see. It helps us to see what we'd otherwise take for granted. And so I ask you again, what is the water we swim in now? What is the big thing we don't talk about? What is, what is happening now that shapes our history that we don't acknowledge? What ought to be on display at the great London exposition of 2021, but isn't? You can talk about that in your tutorial groups or on Teams online. Thanks very much for watching. John Henry had a little one named Juliet. He hugged her, he kissed her before he died. Said, so Julie, do the best you can. Oh, Julie, do the best you can.